Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. All right, welcome on to an Eastern Conference 15 and 60. Got a ton of research to get to y'all. We're going to go in largely alphabetical order, but uh, watched a couple of games that we want to get to. So we'll have those slightly out of order. Let's get to work here in the Atlanta Hawks. Yeah, let's do it. The Hawks are still one game under 500. They, they're they 8 and 9 now, 4 and 4 since last 15 60. Barely below water, negative 0.4 net rating is 17th in the league. And they're a strong 6th in offense, but a disappointing 27th in defense, which we'll talk about in this section. The 538 Raptor model predicts a 72% chance that the Hawks make the playoffs and 46 wins would put them 7th in the East. And ELO, the other model, gives the Hawks a 67% chance of making it. Yeah, it looks like the Hawks are kind of settling in now. Remember, they had fallen to 4-8 and eight after an extremely difficult East Coast swing in which they played Suns, Warriors, and Jazz. I think that was three games and four nights. But since they came home, they are four and one and the offense is right where you would want it to be but uh, their defense uh, has really struggled and some pretty interesting stuff here with them defensively about why it's gone wrong Uh, what stands out to you uh, if anything well so going back to last year you know one of the things that we noticed because there was there was a lot of crazy stuff in terms of the the on off with capella and a part of that was you know opponent opponent three-point shooting was was un was surprising we surprisingly low and so you kind of wondered well where is the equilibrium here um and there are a couple different ways to evaluate big men impact one of them is shot proportions like where team shot locations and then the other one is shot success and capella is doing one of those things more than the other yeah the defense is a 11.6 11.6 points per 100 possessions worse with Clint Capel on the floor. Worth noting, he plays basically all of his minutes with Trey Young, who has slightly even worse on-off differentials in terms of the defense. Uh, last year, opponents shot a lot worse at the rim uh, with Capel on the floor. That was uh, the same this year, but they're now shooting 10 percentage points better from three-point range with Capel on the floor. So the numbers with Capel on the floor have really increased. Not much else has changed, though, in terms of Capella's defensive impact i was expecting as we went through here to maybe see that he had fallen off to some degree he hasn't looked as good he's been dealing with maintenance on this achilles injury missed some time in camp missed a couple of games been questionable for a couple of games uh but opponents as they did last year basically taking the same percentage of their shots at the rim with him on or off the floor so he's not changing their shot profile significantly and he himself with the nba.com tracking data he's allowing 55.5 percent shooting at the rim defending six 
6.5 attempts per game last year when they were 8.5 points per 100 possessions better on defense with Capel on the floor opponents also shot much worse uh, at the rim but had a similar shot profile in terms of percentage of their shots at the rim and he himself defended 52.8 percent of opponents or i'm sorry uh forced uh, opponents to shoot 52.8 percent on shots he defended around the rim so a little bit better than this year although you know we're not talking about a large enough sample that i would say it's a huge difference between 55.5 percent and 52.8 percent at this point in the year but he did defend more shots at the rim last year 7.7 compared to 6.5 this year and about the same amount plays about 30 minutes a, a game did have a nice game last night as they took care of charlotte at home to get to eight and nine he was at 20 and 15 six offensive rebounds and was 10 of 11 from the field in only 24 minutes he had five fouls so limited production a little bit uh and so not as big of a difference as i would have expected and then if you look at their overall numbers danny you do do see something that's kind of interesting in terms of how the raw numbers compare to last year compared to this are you talking about that they have the the same if the the opponent effective field goal percentage is basically is is exactly the same number but it's a very different league rank than it was well basically everything is yeah that's true uh, is about the same as it was last year and in fact you know they were 17th last year and, and much better as we mentioned with Capella on the floor that 17th last year was 113.2 they're actually 1.4 points per 100 better this year but in the lower offense environment again early on in the season that offense tends to go up but also you know we're seeing a lot of a lot less fouling uh, as well this year and more turnovers but their 111.8 actually better than their full season numbers last year when they were 17th is only good for 27th and yeah. so they're allowing 53.3 percent e-field goal percentage which was sixth last year or i'm sorry no let, let me rephrase that their 53.3 percent e-field goal percentage was it was the sixth lowest but then this right, year it's the ninth highest last year yeah and this year it's it's the ninth highest 21st so the exact same in e-field goal percentage you were sixth last year now you're 21st this year and basically everything else is exactly the same they're 29th in forcing turnovers almost the exact same percentage about 12 and a half percent this year and last year they are 10th in preventing offensive rebounds right about 24.5 percent within 0.2 percentage points there and then the free throw rate that they're giving up they have actually fallen a little bit on that this year from 10th to 13th or 13th to 10th rather sorry we'll get better uh even though they are giving up 2.9 fewer free throw attempts per 100 field goal attempts this year than they were last year so the raw numbers are actually better but they just haven't improved as much as everyone else has and that's why their defense works uh something else i want to put a pin in is that the hot i was so i was looking at capella's on off splits and teams are shooting better at the rim this year than they did last year up to 66 percent when he's on the floor this is cleaning the glasses garbage time filter but they're shooting 76 percent from around the rim when capella is on the bench that's a mix of collins and jang at center but those units have still been very effective defensively by what seems incredibly unsustainable opponents are shooting 27.6 percent from three 33 percent on floaters like a lot a lot of things there that are potentially troubling and the in those minutes the hawks aren't forcing any turnovers they are defensive rebounding incredibly well which is impressive because those groups aren't super tall but a lot of teams play small second units now too so I could see that group falling off and the starters improving, but then that that because the starters play more minutes, that shifts the balance towards their defense being better. Yeah, and then the other thing that you can point to in terms of overall where it's gone wrong for them this year is just their overall rim protection is not very good. And as you mentioned, that's mostly due to the crazy numbers and Capella's off the floor. They're allowing 69% shooting at the rim overall as a team. That is last in the NBA 
and also disturbing because they actually are allowing only 34 percent from three which is not and, and they also got pretty lucky on opponent three-point shooting last year this is one another one where it's going in the opposite direction from three where 35 percent given up last year was third best in the nba and now they're at 33.9 percent and they've dropped to 11th <laughs> That's, uh so teams are, are just shooting a, a lot worse from three against them but you know they can't they got to get that rim field goal percentage down if they're going to have a, a decent defense for this oh, year one other thing before we move on the hawks have actually played the tied with the rockets and jazz for the least clutch minutes that's within five points within the last five minutes so interesting that they're there and we can transition to the team that has played the most clutch minutes in the nba the boston celtics celtics are nine and eight five and three since the last 15 and 60 their plus 3.1 net rating is good for ninth in the league and currently their league average 15th in offense and top 10 number nine in defense and the Raptor model still much more positive on the on the Celtics than Elo. Raptor 79% chance of making the playoffs and projected to tie for fifth with 47 wins, whereas Elo basically makes it a 50-50 proposition. Yeah, but they have gotten right at least to some degree. They're over 500 again. They've been doing it all all without Jalen Brown at the moment, and they had back-to-back wins to get to that nine and eight record with Jason Tatum going off 37 against the Lakers, four of nine from three, 13 of 26 from the field. Also got to the foul line for seven attempts still only had two assists which has uh, been a bit of a bugaboo even against the lakers poorest defense they only had 22 assists uh, on 44 field goals and then uh, tatum also in the back-to-back against the thunder had a similar performance 33 points again exactly 50 percent from the field 11 out of 22 this time had had five assists and also again seven free throw attempts uh, which is solid so it, he had really really struggled coming into, the, into those two games but uh, appeared to be getting right a, a little bit how did he do it well i thought it was a little more encouraging that in both of those games he only had four makes out of just straight isolation jump shots which has been the celtics as a team overall one of their big problems has been that despite i would say not having the greatest isolation personnel they are number two in the nba in isolation frequency and about average and with 0.5 0.85 points per possession there but your problem is even if you're pretty efficient in isolation unless you're the brooklyn nets isolating so much it's just you could be efficient for isolations but isolations inherently are not a very efficient play type uh and it's not like they're setting a ton of guys up out of these isolations either as we mentioned in tatum and, and brown then a shooter not a great pass reading those are really your three guys who are doing the the most work there and also interestingly the celtics are fifth in post-up possessions used and their efficiency again there's about average but this has not been a team that's you know brian scalabrini has been begging them to do more driving and kicking they haven't done as much of that and did get more assists in that thunder game although the thunder obviously not a good defense but for tatum i thought it was good to see that he wasn't isolating as much most of his shots were that were jumpers were coming off of screens either off the dribble or off ball screens and he's just much more effective there against a conventional pick and roll defense or against a, a conventional defense guarding him on a screen on like a pin down or something because he's just is not a great isolation player like he's not that quick he doesn't get that much separation to get himself good shots in isolation like most of his shots in isolation are very difficult which he's capable of hitting but you're not when he's taking that shot out of isolation you're like you're not like oh he broke the guy's ankle it's he's wide open right 
Um, the other thing I thought he did really well was he just took advantage of the Lakers, and this isn't the Lakers section, but it was starkly obvious in their attempts to defend Tatum of just how poor their individual defenders are when Tatum was able to work on Avery Bradley a couple times. Those are actually a couple of the isolation jumpers he hit like right from the foul line over Avery Bradley. Uh, he was actually able to take LeBron once off the dribble to the rim. He took Malik Monk down in the post. On occasion, he blew by Carmelo Anthony a couple of times as well. Um, he started off with three three-pointers uh, in, you know, end of the first, beginning of the second, and all those came off of screens rather than going in isolation. And I also, you know, we had heard a lot in the offseason about how Tatum had gotten stronger. We did see that in the OKC game. He drives baseline pretty hard, gets Lou Dort knocked off of him, and he did it more with the shoulder. You know, you noted when we were in the 2020 playoffs, when we were doing all those games of how he was just like shoving off with his forearm so blatantly that maybe more blatantly than anyone in the league. And now he's he's able to do it a little bit more, more within his body, which I think is good. Um, got three catch and shoot threes versus OKC out of the four uh, that he made in that game. Or, I'm sorry, no, that was that was in the Lakers game he had four. He was six of twelve for reacting the OKC game, and so maybe this will mean he's coming along. They're going to reintegrate Braun relatively soon here. It seems like with this hamstring issue that that he's still out from. Robert Williams also has been missing some time with knee soreness, which is always a concern because that's been a prolonged issue throughout his career and also knee issues. <laughs> him to drop in the draft but I, I think the celtics are at least have stabilized enough here with Braun coming back that you know are they do i think they're going to jump into the top four in the east right away here not necessarily but at least they're not in kind of free fall which it looked like they might be when Braun's injury happened yeah, and so Jalen Brown has missed eight straight. Robert Williams has missed three straight. It looks like Brown's going to be back sooner. Um, well, we don't have an exact timeline as as we record this. But we can move on to their Atlantic Division rivals, the Brooklyn Nets. The Nets are 12-5 and five on the season and a strong 6-2 and two since the last 1560. They're now up to 6th in net rating, plus 4.4. 8th in offense, 12th in defense. For those who remember, we did a Watfo on this um, fairly recently. Raptor model and ELO model are both positive on them, about 89% chance of making the playoffs and Raptor projects that they'll finish tied for third in the East with 50 wins. And before we get into the Orlando Brooklyn game, I mean, not a surprise that the, that the nets are number one in isolation frequency, but they're like, we, you brought up the idea that there's an equilibrium and that isolation basketball is just not that efficient except for Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's incredible are. without one Kyrie. Point, yeah. Yeah. Without, I mean, the, he would probably only help that 1.05 points per possession per isolation. So they are number one in frequency and number one in points per possession. I think there's only maybe one or two other teams that are over one point per possession in isolation. And they're at 1.05. And obviously a big part of that is Katie's ridiculous mid-range shooting. I, I actually went on Ben Taylor's podcast. We kind of caught up on some of our thoughts and conflicts on the top players in the NBA. We hit on KD and now he's shooting, you know, like 65% from mid-range or something right now. And what happens, that goes down. But, you know, he's been, he hasn't been at quite this level uh, in last year, but he's been very, very close to that um and Harden actually has been hitting his step back three reasonably well he's been in the high 30s so uh, I guess I, I'm gonna have to take over again here since I watched the Nets Brooklyn game on Friday oh geez no not the Nets Brooklyn game the Nets Magic game somehow whenever I talk about the Nets I always just like screw up the team names I'm out probably it's because Nets just suck so badly as a team name it's just such a cipher I, like my brain just doesn't register it that it's Brooklyn but in any event Nets
that's magic. Jalen Suggs got off in the first quarter of this one as the Magic put up 41 in the first quarter against the Nets, led by as many as 19 at one point. Suggs had four three-pointers in the quarter. Oh, and I'll mention this is the game that Durant missed with a shoulder issue, though he is now off the injury report. Oh, good call there. Yeah, and the Nets were able to end up winning this one, 115-113. It got kind of interesting at the end, as we'll talk about, but... Harden ended up playing 41 minutes in this one, only rested for two minutes in the second half. DeAndre Bembry played 41 minutes. Also, they started Patty Mills. He was awesome, played played him 34 minutes. And that's that's what it took to get by an Orlando team that hasn't been particularly impressive. But that 41, back to Suggs, he hit a couple of pretty deep threes. I mean, I would say, I don't think any of the threes that he hit in that first quarter were, you know, just like wide open spot ups or anything. It was off the dribble, like pretty close to the Barclays Center logo on the right wing, guys going under on him a step or two behind the line so that actually looked pretty good he's getting a little more confidence with the three obviously the overall number of sugs have been pretty atrocious shooting in the low 20s from downtown and then defensively he also was really good in that first quarter got a couple of pick sixes for runouts uh, on plays where he was just staying with guys on either dho's or wide pin down shooting the shooting the gap and getting his hand in for steals so that that looked really impressive unfortunately he would then finish with 21 points on eight out of 18 and didn't make a three after the first and so he actually managed to have a only a middling efficiency game in the end only had uh, three assists uh, as well did lead the magic in scoring uh, however but basically had had four points after the first quarter was over um the magic defense was interesting they of course start mo bamba and i guess you would say the four even though he's taller than carter i think he's really more of the four defensively carter is the five and they actually were trusting bamba to switch out on the perimeter even on to harden where he did a reasonably good job he did follow him on on one three uh, but they trusted him to stay in front of Harden, and Harden did a, a pretty good job. Um, where Harden ended up doing most of his damage was at the foul line, where he was 19 of 20. Yeah, we had we had a couple of big free throw attempt games by players who had a lot of free throw attempts last year. I'll talk about the Bucks one later. So you kind of I don't I don't want to say it's like an equalization, but it's a reminder that you can have games like this. You know, there's there's some sometimes there's more vertical space in a player. You like to raise your free throw attempt rate because you can you know you can have 20 in a game. Well, and there is an interesting challenge that Steve Nash had in the fourth quarter where Cole Anthony, right around the three-point line in a semi-transition, drew a charge call on Harden. And I think it clearly wasn't a charge like he just wasn't in legal guarding position but i think the refs were just sort of like and you'll see this a lot of times they're just like hey we can't give this guy every call um and but so nash challenged it it was clearly a blocking foul and harden just does he has such a great job he and jimmy butler i think are the two best at this of just using attacking the shoulder and using their strength to draw fouls when a guy is not in legal guarding position when he doesn't act when he's not actually in his path because for most guys when they drive it's like yo you gotta basically get a box Body length around this guy so you can turn the corner and get past it. what harden and butler do since they're so strong is they're just like all i gotta do is get half a body length around you and then i'm just gonna plow my body through your shoulder since you're not in legal guarding position and you're either gonna get out of the way and back up or it's gonna be a foul on you and so that's more guys should probably try that i would say now the skinny guys they'll try it and with some of the enforcement now they'll just kind of bounce off of them and try to do the like barf up a shot but that's not working 
playing as well this year but i think harden is starting to find a way to play within the rules you know he wasn't he's not like you could say that that is a trick but is a trick born of the fact that he actually is getting some separation and beating his man and putting him into difficulty where he's not in front of him where and also they fouled him a couple of times on, on threes which is dumb but uh so I, I mean really even more so than ever it seems like with harden you just have to make him make shots and in, even in particular two pointers he only four out of 12 from two he missed three left-handed layups in the first quarter when the magic had, had pretty good defense uh, bomba had a, a nice block on him from behind um yeah go ahead what did you think about franz wagner's night he's been i, I did a breakdown in the last time we did a 15 and 60 so interested in your thoughts yeah i mean i, I think he was he's not going to be necessarily a stopper defensively he does play extremely hard he moves without the ball he'll get into the cracks nicely the biggest difference to me uh, from our pre-draft evaluations which we talked about has just been his shooting yeah he had 17 points uh, and got to the foul line a little bit end up fouling out at, at the end um but just the jumpers that he's taking even some two-point jumpers he's just more aggressive and, and hitting him more than i thought he would for a guy who was a 34 percent three-point shooter in college and didn't really have the cleanest mechanics he kind of has this like splayed or this wide base on his shot that didn't look like it was gonna be that versatile and, and so he's he's belied my expectations in that area and you know i think he can he could put up a a credible fight on someone like Harden. He's not going to, you don't want him to necessarily be the primary, you know, kind of he and Suggs switched up there, but they also did a lot of switching. Uh, uh, didn't want to allow Harden to get into pick and roll unless it was against Carter. Um, pretty much everyone else, uh, they were just, they were going to switch that. And yeah, so I, I thought Franz Wagner had a nice game like some of just the shots that he was taking were were impressive um chumo kiki also had a really nice game for orlando he had 17 points six of eight it hit his two threes both of which were open spot up looks uh, he got into the post a little bit uh, as well. He w- he only had one turnover in this game, but he had a number of plays where he would be a little bit too aggressive and go into traffic and either he got bailed out or uh, would attempt a difficult shot and turnover. And he did finish six out of eight so there w- and with only one turnover. So there weren't that many of those, but it did strike me that he's a little bit too aggressive at times when he just overcommits to his drive or his shot and then just doesn't have, doesn't have anything there. Um, uh, we should talk briefly about, I, I brought up Durant not playing in this game. Uh, Bruce Brown had a hamstring, I mean, we know about Claxton. Bruce Brown had a hamstring issue that he had to, didn't play in the second half, and he's going to be out when the Nets play the Cavs on Monday. Joe Harris is still dealing with this sprained left ankle. And, you know, that quartet of of magicians that haven't played at all this year, Carter Williams, Fultz, Moore, and Isaac, they're all still out. Yeah, so I thought all of that attrition was palpable in the Nets' closing lineup, which was LaMarcus Aldridge, James Johnson, who actually saved them in this game. He had 17 points. Uh, he and Aldridge were actually really good on the offensive glass in the fourth quarter. Johnson had four assists and just really knocked, knocked some heads. Although there was a hilarious play where he and Kessler Edwards were next to each other on the sidelines celebrating a good play. And Kessler Edwards did like a big fist pump and just like slammed his arm into the elbow of James Johnson and James Johnson was like looking down like in pain and just because Kessler Edwards celebration ran into him uh but he obviously was unaffected by that and I think if Johnson can give them something which he did in this game admittedly against the Magic like that would be huge because I think their best lineups last year was Jeff Green at center and Johnson is kind of the close analog they have to that at this point and so they also had Bembry out there I mentioned Bembry played 41 minutes and Aldridge Johnson Patty Mills and Harden and so that's basically Patty Mills Harden and three guys who were essentially freely available 
this offseason who are out there and they still managed to beat the magic uh but they really did it you know when they got back into it in the third they were down nine at halftime they did it with offensive rebounds they had 14 offensive rebounds in this game um and again you know aldridge had four and johnson had three of those 14 offensive rebounds yeah. and those guys they did it pretty much all in the second half um you know aldridge looked more spry than i had seen him and also had some key buckets late when he was closing it out posting up against smaller players the magic closed it out with bomba at center and they replaced carter who really struggled offensively in this one he was 0 of 5 from the field 0 of 4 from 3 and negative 13 he also like really has been struggling to finish inside still it's shooting great from three until this game but uh you know he's still he's still like a guy who does a lot of pump faking he and blake griffin uh had a lot of pump fakes under the basket in, in this game <laughs> but aldridge was able to just go right through the likes of franz wagner he got one on bomba as well it was, it was mostly wagner that he was going after in the post and wagner just not knowing the scouting report or not having the strength to execute it, like you cannot let lamarcus aldridge get to his left shoulder like he will just kill you with that and that that's what he was doing down the end is he's he really scored just enough between he and johnson to keep them in front uh, in the end whereas Harden really ran out of gas uh, in the fourth quarter after he only rusted for two minutes um, yeah and, and Harden, yeah that's a part of the trade-off that coaches have to deal with especially in the regular season is you know pushing that sometimes when you push these guys hard that you that they don't necessarily have it but it was good good for the Nets that they were able to get other guys to pick him up yeah Robin Lopez interestingly again I thought he was really good with Washington last year DMP coach's decision they went with Mo Wagner as the backup center but obviously they also stagger Carter and Bamba to some degree so i mean that that signing of robin lopez other than his affinity for disney world it still remains one of the weirder signings in the offseason you know a team like the kings who just get completely destroyed whenever rashawn holmes goes off the floor and they're getting bludgeoned on the inside could have really used, there's a lot of teams could have really used robin lopez hey the bucks could have really used robin lopez for that matter but they didn't yeah. have five million dollars to give him uh the nets had 13 blocked shots in this game a lot of that again was the magic not having any spacing going up and just having nowhere to go but it's not like you know blake griffin had three block shots harden and bembry had two each it was i don't think we're gonna see a lot of games with the nets having 13 block shots they are not exactly known for their playmaking so what about the end of the game i remember i because this is when i didn't watch i didn't watch live that people were going crazy because the magic were down three and didn't even get a chance to take one yeah the nets did a really good job of fouling on a couple of possessions to prevent the tie also terrence ross missed a one of two free throws when he was intentionally fouled which made it rough uh so it's a four-point game with nine seconds left uh after harden hits a couple of free throws magic get a very quick two to get it within two seconds to get it to a two-point game they get a quick take foul with 4.8 left they have no timeouts left at this point harden makes one out of two so they're down three 4.8 left but javon carter actually takes a foul on Cole Anthony just out by half court. Anthony makes the first free throw, setting up, of course, with the Magic having no timeouts. One of my favorite situations, the intentional miss free throw. And of course, uh, I was about to say Carmel. Cole Anthony bangs it right off the middle of the square, doesn't hit the rim and commits a violation on the touch throw. And that's that is game over. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we have it. So we have it out there. Orlando's stats for this season. They're down now to a four and thirteen record, though they're two and five since last fifteen sixty. They're twenty seventh in net rating, about a negative ten per hundred possessions. Twenty sixth on offense, twenty eighth on defense, and they're projected to be the second worst team in the Eastern Conference and to not make the playoffs. Man, I just love 
American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfit of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace user in our capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us Okay, who's up next here? Let's go to the Charlotte Hornets. Um, a lot, of, a lot of kind of interesting nuggets that I want to talk about with them. Uh, the Hornets are now up to ten and eight. They're five and three since last fifteen sixty. A little bit above water net rating. Plus, uh, plus zero point three is sixteenth. Tenth in offense. Twentieth in defense. And the really kind of telling stat on the depth of the Eastern Conference is that the Hornets SRS simple rating system basically is trying to account for how big your win is and also strength of schedule, which is why sometimes it can be useful in the early part of a season when teams have played very different schedules. The Hornets, so, and it's supposed to be that zero was average. There are 11 teams in the Eastern Conference that are above average, and the Hornets are the 11th of those 11 teams, which is part of why 538's models project them to finish like 11th 
and then like a 30 to 40 percent chance of making the playoffs. So right now it's looking like the East is pretty deep, which is um, and that could be bad news for some teams. Also, I would guess that this will resolve at least to some extent via injuries, because unfortunately that's what happens. So something that I, I, I wanted to do a little bit of digging in was I've, I've, I've always been interested in the Hornets defense and. This year so far, because, you know, Mason Plumlee was an addition that we criticized, mostly because of the potential other options that could have been on the board, depending on what Rashawn Holmes valued. We don't know all the yeah. details there. I, I mean, let's let's see what JT Thor becomes. He hasn't figured yet, but they did get sure. him out of that deal. They moved up 57 to 37, and then they also took on Plumlee's $8 million this year in the partially guaranteed. Yes. So, so far, the Hornets are actually above average defensively when Plumlee's on the floor, and then that skyrocket, the defensive rating skyrockets all the way to basically a 115 when he's off the floor. But there are some definite warning signs for those of us who are skeptical of Mason Plumlee's defense because opponents of the Hornets are only shooting 30% on threes when Plumlee's on the floor and they're making almost 69% of their shots around the basket. So if you expect, you know, the thing that you can control more is the shots around the basket. Those are going in a lot and the, and the threes will eventually equalize at least to some extent. But the good news there is even though the Hornets, like, the, the there is that ground to kind of lose back on effective field goal percentage, they're not fouling too much and they're forcing some turnovers um especially i believe since they've gotten rosier back so can they be above water or close to it in those lineups i'm still skeptical and it is also a problem that they've been so bad defensively when he's off the floor even though from a personnel perspective that's not a huge surprise yeah we don't consider mason plumley to be some great defensive center but even a, an okay center as opposed to not having anyone does make a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And partially, I mean, so PJ Washington is, has missed extended period of time and James Brigo, because of the roster construction, they just don't have, I mean, they have all these, you know, young centers that I guess they don't think are ready, which is also kind of telling. And so Nick Richards yeah. gotten some I, time. Yeah. Nick Richards. I always, by the way, I always think a top secret when I see Nick Richards, the, uh, but that's actually Nick Rivers is the name of the Beach Boys ask uh, parody singer is, and top series. Val Kilmer actually played those songs by himself, by the way. Uh, underrated uh, 80s comedy. Uh, in any event, yeah, Nick Richards, I, th I think he, I I'd like to see more of what he, uh, I don't know that he's going to be a panacea, but they might consider more of him. Yeah, and so the lineups when Plumlee's been out, they've been hemorrhaging points defensively. I mentioned about a 114.6 defensive rating. Um, but they're actually positive in terms of net rating because they've been ridiculous offensively. And yes, some of that is they've been shooting, those lineups have shot really well from three, but it also, when you're playing like, you know, sometimes it's Miles Bridges at center and they have a lot of wing sized guys with Martin and Hayward and they, you know, Lamello's out there for some of the time because it's not just like, it's not bench mobs tell stuff. And so I don't, you know, kind of like I mentioned with the starter defense, like I don't think that the equilibrium is quite where things are right now but it does make sense that those groups are really good offensively especially when they can run the ball where they've been ridiculous a 135 offensive rating when that second when the non-plumley lineups are in transition yeah and they also the ability to spread the floor at all five positions i think that makes things a lot easier for lamello you know I, I don't think that plumley has been a very good pick and roll player for lamello i think it's just easier for him when the floor is spread and he can maybe work it in isolation a little bit more that, that would actually be something to look at in the future see that hypothesis corrective lamello's numbers when plumley is on or off the floor the other thing too is that plumley you know for a low usage guy his true shooting percentage is only 55 percent like about league average and part of the reason for that is that he is currently shooting 32 percent from the foul line he is 14 of wow from the foul line on the year and so that he could become a hacker candidate at some point in time here 
Their loss against the Hawks I thought was really interesting because they Lamelo didn't have a great game. Rozier really struggled. They shot terribly from three, twenty five percent from three. Uh, but Miles Bridges took twenty eight field goal attempts. Like he is really becoming their highest usage guy, their number one option at this point. When you probably would have said he would have been maybe their number four option. Yeah, at the start of the year. So that's I, I mean if he, if they are really good and it wasn't really doing much from three either in that game as well he was yeah only two at nine from three so that's 19 two-point attempts uh, from bridges and he, he's doing a lot more in isolation some self-created stuff as well uh and at night when ball was 518 and zero was four out of 13 he was kind of their only offense at that point um anything else to talk about with these guys well it's still we're, we're serious small sample size but terry rozier was an absolute monster in crunch time last year 67 percent true shooting was one of the best of a high usage guy in the entire league right now you know remember he missed the start of the year rosier's at 34 percent true shooting in cluster situations which is one of the lower marks in the league incidentally the only high usage guy who has a lower true shooting is steph curry um 32 percent and he's but part part of that is some of their accomplice games that were that got blown out before the last five minutes because this is a very specific part but both those guys rosier has struggled in those circumstances and that's a part of why charlotte has in only 35 clutch minutes, but they have a 94 offensive rating, which is one of the weaker marks in the league in, cl- in clutch situations. Yeah. That said, uh, now at 10 and 8, they, as Atlanta did, really faltered on a West Coast trip, looked like they could be in free fall, then they came back home and had that nice win over the Warriors on Monday, and now have really righted the, the ship yeah. to some degree. They, they beat the Wiz uh, as well this week. So a couple of really nice wins for them uh, at home this week. Let's move on to Chicago now. They are 11 and 5. Five and three since the last 15 and 60, but that has been an impressive five and three, I would say, as we'll get to. Fifth in the NBA in net rating is plus 6.1. Offensive rating is seventh, 111.1, but sixth on defense. That's the, the big surprise, 105. They project for a tie for fifth in the East right now. 47 wins, a uh, uh, 74% chance of the playoffs per Raptor. Elo bumps them up to 88%. So Raptor was lower on them at the start of the year, lower on their players, whereas Elo, based on just their performance today, date it really likes what they've done and in terms of srs they are second in the eastern conference again that that tries to adjust for the schedule i think they're about a five I got it. they are a 5.7 srs which basically tries to say this is what your point differential would be versus an average schedule it just uh, adjusts what it would be and it's not they've played about an average schedule like so far but yeah the, their recent results pretty impressive uh, considering that they've been without nikola vucevic so long and is not going to play again today on on Sunday. And and not only have they been without Vooch, but they're they're three and two in those five games, all of which occurred on the road against many good opponents as well. Uh, They so they they beat Denver impressive win uh, 114-108. Levine had a ridiculous 36 points and we've brought up worth noting Jokic did not play in that one by the way. Yes that's true. Um, Yeah I thought that Denver game they really uh, unleashed Derek Jones Jr. as a role mm -hmm. man and he had a a ridiculous two-handed dunk from the dotted line which he was then like oh yeah that one wasn't even in my top 10. I've had some ridiculous (laughs) dunks but uh, Denver was doing some switching. Lonzo had a couple of really nice passes to find him as well. So this is, you know, it's not like they have a ton of spacing on these groups, even with Jones out there as the backup center. But 
finally seeing him really involved in pick and roll for the first time in his career. I mean, that's always what I believed he would be so awesome at. I still regret that he didn't end up uh, in Dallas when he was a free agent 2020 offseason playing next to Porzingis and and playing pick and roll uh, with Luka. Um, The other thing that's really interesting for the Bulls is that they are awesome in transition per cleaning the glasses numbers. They are the number one transition team adding the most points per game in transition by almost a point per game adding almost six points a game to what would be expected due to their transition game their offensive rating in transition is currently a ridiculous 137.8 which is five points per 100 ahead of number two miami and that's not like a crazy outlier number i wanted to look at them like oh is this like something we should expect to regress maybe a little bit but last year utah was number one with a 133 offensive rating in transition so part of the reason that they are so good in transition is they get a lot of steals and that's where they're really killing it um they're good off and misses too but uh they're only 12th in the percentage of time that they're in transition but they are so efficient in transition that they still add the most value in transition and when you think of some of the guys that can get out there like Levine like Caruso Lonzo those guys generate a lot of pick sixes as well Lonzo pushing the ball in transition I mean some of the finishers that they have as well um one downside for the bulls kobe white hasn't looked great in no. his return they, they've struggled in his minutes he doesn't fit into this kind of scrappy identity that but they could use a third perimeter score because one really interesting thing is uh that you found they haven't played a single non-garbage time possession with both DeRozan and levine off the floor that's pretty incredible it is incredible, and that speaks to the diligence of Billy Donovan to run the ro- to run the rotation. Something he didn't do. He, he had, uh, that. Or sorry, I was going to blame him for something Scotty Brooks didn't do in, OK, in OKC because that was before Billy's tenure. Yeah, he um, tried to stagger those guys uh, in his first year. I remember yeah. that was a a matter of some consternation. It was, um, but and also that's th- those guys have been healthy. Uh, DeRozan and Levine don't want to get too obsessive over the splits, but the one that I think is is really significant and. And you and I were both lower on the DeRozan acquisition, not only because of the asset cost, but because of what, you know, our valuation of him as a player. But one of the things that we both really liked was the value of DeRozan running the show when Zach Levine was sitting. And that has really been the case so far. 113 offensive rating when DeRozan is on and Levine is off in a brilliantly strong plus 12 net rating in 380 possessions. And that is, especially in the regular season, a part of DeRozan that that we expected to be there and that really has because, you know, it's a, depending on how you want to structure it in terms of whether DeRozan plays with Fooch or plays with Tony Bradley, they've done more for him with Bradley and then they kind of kept Levine with Vooch, which which makes some sense when you think about them as a pick and roll combination. And yeah, well, that's interesting. I would have thought actually that you would want to have Vooch more with DeRozan. But to open up the floor. I think you can do it. You can do it either way. I think that the concern is that they might be too flammable defensively. Um, it seems good depending on how I think they should try it both ways. It's actually something I would I, I want to keep an eye on. But DeRozan, you know, playing with playing with some limited offensive players has been able to keep that to keep them afloat. I mean, more than afloat. They've been doing re- really well offensively. And that's a part of why DeRozan has had this really great start to the year. Yeah. So DeRozan, let's compare him the top line numbers from last year in San Antonio to this year. One surprise on a team that you would say probably has more threats 
is that his usage has gone up quite a bit from 26% up to 30%. And he's almost exactly the same efficiency, but considering the decreased efficiency across the league and the fact that he has a higher usage, that's impressive to maintain that that same 59% true shooting. And then if you look at the play types, eerily similar in terms of how he's increased his volume in basically all these because the usage is higher, but in terms of how he's dividing up his offense, 37.5% of the time is a pick and roll ball handler this year. 37.7% of the time last year, he actually was more efficient uh, as a pick and roll ball handler last year in San Antonio. Uh, Then isolation and spot ups, both in the the 15% range, or show so he's doing spotting up four percent more of the time that's probably the biggest change and as mentioned previously he's taking a couple of threes a game which he wasn't really doing in san antonio about the same amount in the post about the same amount in transition interestingly enough so he's kind of just doing the exact same thing that he was doing last year in san antonio but with more volume on maybe even a a more with some of these groups he's playing with like a more limited offensive roster other than levine obviously so yeah been a, a great acquisition so far and i said if billy donovan got these guys in the top half league in defense uh he'd be a serious coach of the year candidate for me well uh we may discuss that when we do our awards in the next and, couple of weeks here and i looked it up derozan this is using nba.com's version of usage 26 percent usage when he plays with levine that spikes to 35 percent when he's the solo star and the offense has been actually as as was the case in the other stat that i had the offense has been more efficient when it's been just derozan let's get to the Cavs. we got some sad news to discuss there they are still over 500 at least for the time being nine and eight uh they they had a nice run against the warriors on thursday but ended up giving up a 20 point fourth quarter to steph curry and losing that one uh three and four since the last 15 and 60 the negative 1.0 now net rating is 20th 23rd on offense but a a very solid 11th on defense Uh, as we know they have a a bunch of guys out still looks like jared allen i think yeah, Allen, Allen and Markinen are both coming back for their next game. Okay. Um, so they project for 34 wins, which would be 13th in the conference, amazingly. I mean, that's again, we talked about how robust the East is. Raptor, not too enamored of their playoff odds at this point, 6%. Elo likes it a little bit better at 20%. But we did finally get the news on Colin Sexton. And at least for this year, it was not good. No, it isn't. And Woj reported shortly after we recorded our last podcast that Sexton did have season-ending surgery to repair his torn meniscus. And the timing is brutal for both Sexton and the Cavs. For the Cavs, they lose one of their offensive engines for the remainder of the season. And for Sexton, uh, loses a ton of momentum going into restricted free agency. He and the Cavs could not come to terms on an extension. And so now we know he's going to get that. Uh, Bobby Marks, just to get everything in line, um, his qualifying offer will be 7.2 million. Clearly, the Cavs will make that qualifying offer to retain match rights. And and by the way, quickly, the reason that's the case, his qualifying offer would have been a lot higher had he made the starter criteria. But now, well, actually, is he going to make the starter criteria? Because I believe he will not, because it's either in the last year or the average of the two. I believe is what yeah, the starter right, criteria yeah. is, and so this be this nukes basically the average of the two years. That's right. Yeah, I was trying to remember how the previous year played into it, and so yeah, I mean, if if he had played half the season this year, he probably actually would have made it. But uh, unfortunately. 
yeah so he gets his qualifying offer reduced down to a number that you know at 7.2 million he's probably not necessarily going to want to take i agree with you they will extend that to him he'll be a restricted free agent and we had talked previously but maybe worth revisiting here the idea that this is a harder discussion for him than for some where normally you would want to say hey he wants to have a long career if you can repair it that has the better long-term outcomes rather than the trim where you run the risk of getting closer to more of a bone-on-bone situation as your career goes on despite the fact that you could come back maybe in an eight-week sort of time frame rather than this which is going to be season-ending surgery it's usually four to six months uh, we've seen it go even longer with, with the likes of, of James Wiseman and Jaron Jackson uh, of late um, so you know other players to have this uh, surgery Derek Rose Russell Westbrook uh, to actually have the repair and but my thought was that to establish where he was and establish a market it might actually have been better for his career earnings to come back and go into restricted free agency on a high note rather than just having not played for essentially an entire season but but it was that's you know, not we, what he elected to do i mean i'm not saying that he should and, and, that and it also could be what the surgeon saw when they went in there you know like it there, there, yeah. there are possibilities and it's po- it, there's a chance that the Cavs can get a disabled player exception, but because Sexton makes so little money right now, it would only be worth $3.2 million, which is incidentally almost the exact amount that the Cavs are below the tax. So they could give a player more than their minimum, but who's available? It's not, I mean, there'd be an unconventional buyout destination, so it'd be more just like if they could find value and as bobby marks noted they have no roster spots so it's uh it's such a such a dispiriting challenging situation for cleveland and that coming on not on the heels because it happened first but at the same time as evan mobley's out with with his injury it's going to be harder harder for the Cavs. i i was impressed overall that i thought they looked competitive against the, against the warriors you know had a lead for a lot of that game but then got blown out in the fourth and you know it's it's i mean we're there's a lot to be kind of frustrated because things were going so well for them. But I don't. This isn't a full scout. I would say the early returns on Darius Garland. Well, well year, quick, quickly before we move on to Darius Garland, I have a Watfo for you. Okay. Uh, of course, the part of the reason that we say that maybe players should take extensions more than they do is due to the risk of injury. And now, unfortunately, that has reared its head for Sexton. Now, given what the Cavs were reputed to be offering, we don't have a firm number on it, but it seems like it was less than twenty million percent. I'm not sure I would have taken that as Sexton. But now uh, things have obviously changed. And I thought he he also had a worse start to the year than I would have expected him to have. So what are the chances that Colin Sexton gets more than $60 million guaranteed this offseason? Oof. There are a lot of factors working against this from Sexton potentially wanting to take a shorter term contract to get on the market more quickly to there only being on my preliminary estimate for sal- teams that have salary cap space. And you, you pretty much ha- you'd have to have more than the mid-level and offer a long contract to get over this. But one of those few teams that could get in the mix say, hey, this is this is un- an unusually good player they can get there. Maybe the Cavs, because of all the other obligations, they're paying Jared Allen a bunch of money. They're going to have to pay Garland, presumably, at some point. The Kevin Love is still under contract. Maybe they think Sexton is ah. more gettable. But there are a lot of forces working against this. And I feel badly for Sexton that I'm going to do this, but I'm going to go 12%. Yeah, the which teams have cap space thing is always a, a concern as well. I don't see him as a fit in OKC or Orlando or Memphis. He actually might not be terrible in Detroit. Like, And also, Troy Weaver seems like more of a traditionalist points per game type of guy. Um, you know, I actually think he could be a pretty decent fit next to Cade Cunningham and then could just focus purely on scoring and Cade 
Cade can gives you a little bit more size. That actually wouldn't be terrible. I also think he wouldn't be too bad of a fit in San Antonio either to play next to Dejounte Murray, where again they they need some scoring. But sixty million dollars is a is a big number, and because even if it were, you could also see it going maybe the way of like you know maybe he would get three years sixty million with the last year non guaranteed, like a long enough where they could do an extension if they needed to. Uh, they do without him. They have plenty of room uh, under the tax uh, they're at uh, his cap holds gonna be 19.9 million and remember sorry, that doesn't million. go down even though his qualifying offer does that's right that's right so but he, even with that 19 million dollar cap hold they still have about almost 20 million dollars below the tax and 11 players under contract if they you want to include him they will want to bring back ricky rubio as well but if they give him 20 million that wouldn't totally compromise things and but yeah i think i mean because even if they gave him they would have to give him like four years 15 million a year which i'm not even sure if he would want to take i think he, he might want to try to prove his value there so yeah i I won't, I wasn't going to go quite as quite as low as twelve percent. I was going to go twenty eight percent, but I I don't really like that number. I probably should have made the number low. I should have made it more like fifty than sixty. But yeah, call call it a twenty eight percent chance of. But also because Cleveland kind of takes care of their guys, but they and. I mean, they don't have that many guys hit restricted for agency. Though Jared Allen did, and they yeah. paid him. So well, and just what is Colin Sexton? Is he just going to be on the Lou Williams career path now? Is that what he's going to be viewed as, rather than a guy who averaged twenty-five points a game on pretty good efficiency just last season? Well, and then Grinch. there's the other possibility is that if this Cleveland season, I, I don't think this is going to happen, but maybe they have the kind of the Memphis good fortune of they're not the worst team in the league, but they end up jumping up in the lottery. They could potentially replace Colin Sexton in the draft, and then just be yeah. less willing to you know be less willing to overpay him let's put it that way yeah now their long-term books finally are not too terrible once love finally comes off in 2023 and maybe they would be able to buy uh, out love finally ch- challenge accepted by kobe altman <laughs> Uh, do, do you still want to talk briefly on uh, Darius Garland? Not yeah. not a full breakdown, but just no, no, just just a little bit. Um, I, I think in some ways the most important thing is not necessarily like his individual stats, fifty nine percent true shooting on twenty four usage, but the Cavs have been above average offensively when Garland has been on the floor. And yes, Cleveland's offensive talent has continued to Im- to improve, but I mean they're often playing with two two or three seven footers or big big dudes. Put that way, even though marketing can shoot. And Garland's his like kind of his role within the offense in terms of like volume is about the same as it was last year, but more efficient at 59% true shooting. And he's taking 7.23s a game, which is a lot more than last year. And the thing that I think is most encouraging, and I, I liked Garland's three-point shooting. I was a big fan of him as a prospect, for those who remember. I wondered about how he was, you know, as a smaller guy, how he was going to finish around the basket, do on twos. And 48% last year, up to 55% in the early going now. What's a little concerning, though, is that he's shooting 55% on long twos. And that's pretty much unsustainable if you're anybody other than Kevin Durant. But Garland up to 68% in the restricted area, and that's fantastic, even if his attempt rate is dropped. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone 
is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house. Get that 100-night trial. They're 10 to 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us pistons are four and eleven three and three since the last few 15 and 60 negative 10.7 net rating is goal 29th in the nba they are 28th on offense uh, 23rd uh, on defense they project for 21 wins which would be 15th in the conference they will not be making the playoffs what have you seen from jeremy grant so far this year a, a guy who really started off extremely well last year but experienced a drop off throughout the, the course of his season yeah so one of the questions that i had going into this year and it hasn't been a, a full you know like but beyond a shorter season full sample with kate cunningham because he missed the start of the year and was a little off at the beginning but was is jeremy grant going to take a smaller role within the offense does that lead to him being more efficient and the preliminary answer is yes he has a smaller role down from 28.5 usage to 26 and his assist percentage you know grant is kind of settling in at a much higher role than he had anywhere else in his career before last year but lower than he had last year so that's about what we would expect but a big drop all the way to 52% true shooting. And part of that is only 31% from three, taking a reasonably high volume, but also Grant getting to the line less, getting to the basket less. And so that means he's shooting a higher proportion of his shots beyond 14 feet. And Grant is only shooting 29% on those. And that's, a, and that's really discouraging because Grant is actually taking more unassisted twos than last year, despite having more creation talent around him. Yeah, and this is now, he's kind of fallen back into maybe what would have been expected for him when he first signed in Detroit. And he still has been okay on some of the spot-up stuff. Um, but we are starting to see at least uh, Cade Cunningham round into form a little bit here. Yeah, and so there were a couple a couple of games in the early going as Cade was coming back from that ankle issue where it's like, oh, is it really there? Um, and then at kind of after that point, and yes, cutting arbitrary endpoints and all that acknowledging, but we knew that he didn't look right physically. He cut out those first couple of games that he played. Cunningham's averaging 17 points, six rebounds, four and a half assists, and 1.6 steals per game. And the Pistons offense, I just brought this up with Darius Garland, um, that the Cavs offense is above average when Garland's on the floor. It's you know below a point per possession when when Kate Cunningham's out there, but the surrounding talent isn't isn't at that level yet, and it's it's not a huge surprise that he can't that he hasn't been able to elevate. The-
update them dramatically yet. But, I mean, you could go in a couple different directions, but Cunningham has looked more like the player that we thought, both in terms of what he's doing, but also in terms of his jump shot, than he did in that very early going when we were much more concerned. Yeah, I, I went back and looked at some of his summer league film and some of the jumpers that he took in his last game. It's not really materially different. So I will officially not sound the alarm on that. And he's just starting to hit more as well, which looks good. In terms of how he's being used, uh, pick and roll ball handler is the number one play type. Very little in isolation so far, although that hasn't been effective either. You know, he's at 0.6 points per possession as in the pick and roll and 0.73 in isolation. Like that's terrible. The self-created stuff has been ugly. The Pistons as a team are absolutely terrible. And But his jumper's going in on spot-ups. He's 12 of 31 on spot-up threes, but all shots off the dribble, he's 10 out of 42, which is, is pretty miserable. Uh, but I, I think he's going to come around a little bit there. Uh, his distribution, I think, has been as advertised. His defensive effort has been as advertised as well. Another big problem for the Pistons, though, is that Sadiq Bey has failed and then some to build on the promise of his rookie. Yeah, we were so encouraged because it's rare for a rookie to be a positive contributor on a good team or a bad team and Sadiq Bey 57% true shooting and 38% from three on pretty high volume 30% on threes 46% true shooting overall and I mean the the bigger in some ways the bigger concern for me you know sometimes players try to you know in their second year especially when they're on a bad team explore the studio space do a little bit too much Sadiq Bey shooting 30% on catch and shoot threes in the early going so my hope is that's just small sample size and it's not that he is actually a worse shooter than he was as a rookie yeah I think I think so and uh, again we've talked many times about the main thing being the main thing and I think he just needs to find a way to get back to doing the things that he was good at last year before he, he gets into really trying to expand his game too much I think the fact that Cade was out at the beginning and that he was leaned on so much for creation that he's not really capable of doing it, it was not really a good thing for him yeah so he's got 46 percent true shooting uh Killian Hayes much improved this season he is uh 42.2 true shooting last year and he's up to 42.3 percent true shooting this year and about a thousand years he can be there <laughs> uh he he has shown a very incremental improvement this season going up from a 5.3 pr to 8.2 he has actually lowered his assist percentage from last year i remember he only played 26 games last year due to the hip he turned it over on 29 percent of his possessions last year now that's 21 percent. but he's also really lowered his usage from 19 to 15 and yeah it, it's looking like they just if they want to have a real team and they have like some decent vets they got some some young players who would like to try to win some games uh i think they need to just end this farce of starting him at well, this point. but he's just too bad i i wouldn't i would agree but one of the big challenges that they're dealing with is is kelly olenic being out i mean it in yeah. olenic i mean he has so he is i'm not sure if we if we spend enough time on this that he has a grade two mcl sprain and so he's gonna be out at least at least six weeks though he's now a week and a half into that yeah. six weeks you know we yeah we might not have even talked about that at all actually somehow um but yeah, that's that's a major problem. I mean, they, they brought him in to try to help shepherd some of these young perimeter players along with the DHO game and being able to mash on switches and and space the floor, it, playing at either the four or the five. And and he was easily had the best shooting pedigree probably of anyone on this team, unless you want to say Bay is one year. But Olenek obviously has done it over a longer period of time. I have liked what I've seen from Frank Jackson with these guys, though. I think he probably needs to play more. And I wouldn't be opposed to him just replacing Killian Hayes in the starting lineup and just making Cade essentially the point guard just to get some modicum of shooting out there on the floor because he's actually been hitting well.
well. He's been coming off screens, uh, hitting some shots, so has had some good games. Um, let's move on to the Pacers here. What are their fundamentals? Indiana, 7-11 and 11 on the season, 4-4 four and four since last 15-60. They're, despite that below 500 record, they're a, they have a positive net rating. Uh, they're, plus, they're 15th plus 1.6, and they're 13th in offense, 15th in defense. Raptor gives them a 48% chance of making the playoffs, and but also projects they'd finish 9th in the conference, and ELO says 34%. And part of what's challenging, I think, the models is that the Pacers are underperforming their point differential by the most in the NBA. Uh, they're 2.9 wins below the expectation on their differential. Um, and they're 3-9 and nine in games that have clutch time. So that means it was within five points at any juncture. And they have a negative 24 net rating in 50 clutch minutes, which is a lot, second behind the Celtics. And notably, you know, we're dealing with a 50-minute sample size, so we're not going to go too crazy about this. It's been more the Pacers' offense not living up to standards rather than them having a bad defense. Their offensive rating is an 89 yeah, that's that's been rough. Uh, would you like to weigh in here on the eternal question? Well, I don't want to dwell, delve into it too much. Um, the, you know, the the Pacers have been very good when Turner and Sabonis have played together. They've been more negative when Sabonis is on and Turner is off. That's in their negative six net, net rating. There, I actually talked a fair amount about that with Caitlin Cooper for Real GM Radio. We talked a lot about the Pacers, um, but part of it is the oh, that was that you just recorded that today. Yes. So okay, yeah. Well, let's. Let's not step on that in that yeah. game. Yeah, so but we, about the floor balancing and some of the issues some of the issues there. Um one interesting thing is that unlike the Bulls um, Carlisle has tried experimenting a little bit more uh, in the in the Pelicans game in particular with Batadze as the only big, you know, so Turner and Sabonis both being out and they, they did well, but that's, you know, we're not dealing with a, a big a big thing here. We don't know if that's going to be a part of the rotation moving forward. And one of the, something that you and I noticed, we did the Pacers game on Monday for uh, the NBA cast. Uh, also note that our game for this week doesn't involve an Easter conference team, but I'll promote it now that we're doing Grizzly. Grizzlies Jazz. It's an eight. It's an eight thirty Eastern, five thirty Pacific start. So if you want to keep an eye on that. But something that we noticed in that game was that they really missed Chris Duarte. And it's weird for a team to really miss a rookie. But part of it is, you know, not a ton of suitable replacements. A part of it is that Duarte's fit in pretty well. It's so interesting how the Pacers seem to have acquired all of these guys who you know are a little bit above average offensive players in terms of the load that they can take on. But nobody who even comes close to that kind of heliocentric sort of player and Duarte fits uh, right into that as well if you think about this team Brogdon even Jeremy Lamb kind of fits into that TJ Warren for what he's been with the Pacers kind of fits into that as well Karis Levert kind of fits into that and so they've since the the departure of Paul George and then Victor Oladipo going down they've really tried to do more of a offense by committee approach which has had a missed success but Duarte does fit into that the problem that you run into as I've talked about many times with these ensemble casts is that if you're missing part of the ensemble then all of a sudden it sounds really terrible uh where you know if you if you've just like missing the guy who does the triangle from the orchestra and and you've got you know your awesome first chair violinist then you're fine if you have a, a orchestra where ever everyone is equally important you lose one of them then, then it looks a lot worse and duarte uh, despite that has fit in well you know he's been i think a solid enough starter and you look at how he's gotten his points he hasn't really been particularly effective in the purely self-created stuff 
off uh, with pick and roll ball handler. He has, has been solid in isolation. That's only 17 possessions, obviously, but he hasn't been used too much there. His key play types are spot up uh, and transition, but you know, a little pick and roll ball handler, a little handoff, little ISO, little off screen. So he does give them some more movement off the ball, which is something that they've lacked. He's probably, would you say he's their best shooter? He's probably their best shooter. I would right? say so, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, because Brogdon, he'll hit when he's open, but he's not going to do anything off the ball. He's not really going to take contested threes. Like that's that's probably the biggest thing to me is that Duarte is just able to generate a few more shots in some of these play types than you might expect where he's he's comfortable shooting the three even with a little bit more of a closeout than just kind of your average wing sort of player. And so he's just able to give you a little bit more above average in a lot of areas. You know, is he going to be some crazy 40% three-point shooter? You know, that would be really great for them, obviously. that The shooting is clearly his number one skill, but he's capable of doing some stuff in the inside the arc. He can make some passes. He's got a little bit of a mid-range game. So just kind of a solid overall offensive player is what stood out for me. What are his overall numbers on the season right now? So Duarte is only, he's only at 53% true shooting um, on 21 usage, but that's because he's been struggling from two, 39% on five threes per game so far and he never gets to the free throw line yeah this is not a team that gets to the line <laughs> a, a ton um overall and this is something caitlin and i talk about a lot but the pacers are actually a surprisingly strong 11th and half court offense but stop me if you've heard this before with the rick carlisle team they play a vast majority of their possessions in the half court and so that's why they're less efficient you know overall they're they're 11th and half court offense but they're 13th in offensive rating because they don't get out in transition yeah and perhaps there are people who might have said all right, the reason the Mavs never ran was because you have a six eight point guard who's kind of slow in Luca, and then before that you had Dirk, and who's who is the point guard who is really pushing it down your throat? And maybe for Rick Carlisle, it was all based on personnel they never ran. Well, now you no longer have that argument because last year with this basically the same roster, the Pacers have had some of the least turnover of any of any team. Uh, they were third in their percentage in transition. That was probably the one thing I thought that Nate Bjorken did really well. Now the transition on the defensive end of the floor <laughs> was not too. Good good and it, perhaps the way that they ran fostered a little bit of a laissez-faire attitude in terms of the overall transition um and then he th- this is another thing where i think again you know, carl i consider him a good coach but this is a blind spot that he's always have you might want to say okay you know he decided it's not a great idea to run malcolm brogdon again not your prototypical push it down your throat point guard you're playing with two bigs no reason to try and run but when they put tj mcconnell on the floor they don't actually run anymore and he was so good in transition last year mcconnell I think has been nowhere near as good in part because of the fact that they haven't run and he's been he's so important in just pushing the ball up and finding something and that's just not something that the Pacers do anymore um anything else that you wanted to add uh, on that no let's let's jump to the Miami Heat they are 11 and 6 on the year uh 5 and 4 since the last 1560 they're still a ridiculously strong third in net rating plus eight per hundred possessions fifth in offense fifth in defense and they're probably going to make playoffs about 90 percent in both 538 models and 538 projects them to finish with 51 wins which would be second in the east and going back to srs the heat are tops in the east and they are third in the entire nba behind the warriors and the jazz yeah if you're just talking about performance so far this season heat jazz warriors uh, uh, you probably have to throw suns in there too uh even though they've done what they've done recently against a, a pretty crappy schedule srs doesn't like them nearly as much but let's get into their game against washington which they did lose uh, but i thought it was an absolutely fascinating game 
the Heat were at full strength for the first time in a while, though. They've had a lot of guys kind of in and out. I guess Marquise Morris didn't play. Like he's looks like he's. Oh, we we should clarify. This is referring to yeah. the Saturday game against the Wizards, as opposed to the Thursday game, which Washington. Or no, sorry, which this is the Thursday game, which Miami won. Yeah, with Spencer Dinwiddie sitting out uh, that one in yes. Miami. Then this was this is the second. This is the end home of the home and home. Uh, so yeah, important clarification there. So Miami had their guys basically though. Marquise Morris, it sounds like he's going to miss like ten games with his neck thing. And remember, he was kind of an eggshell plaintiff for the Jokic thing. You know, I would uh, again, it doesn't. If it were anyone else, and he hadn't also antagonized Jokic with a, an obvious flagrant foul on a on a take foul in transition, I would have a lot more sympathy for him, and probably the world at large would. But to end up missing a bunch of games because of an extracurricular play like that, you can make the argument that Jokic really should have been suspended more, given what the impact of that was. But again, Mark. Keith had, had had all these neck issues and hopefully he's able to get right even if he did kind of I mean I think we said this at the time but if you if you're gonna commit an act like that against someone I wouldn't recommend turning your back on him <laughs> put it that if you're gonna be that aggressive you probably should be prepared to defend yourself after that uh in any event though this game against Washington was really interesting it got a lot of notes on it uh, and uh, I really liked a, a couple of plays that both of these coaches run I, I continue to be impressed by what West Ensel Jr. is doing uh, against Miami switching which they went to basically the entire time except when Dwayne Dedman was out there when they blitzed it with Dwayne Dedman um Unsell Jr. ran a nice play in the fourth quarter where he started out having the guy who was eventually going to set the pick and roll the center first set a back screen on the guy that Tyler Hero was guarding so that then the guy and they didn't want to switch that off the ball back screen with Tyler Hero so then the guy guarding the screener had to help on the first back screen and then the screen center went right in to set a screen i think it was for bradley beal and beal got right to the basket so it was a good way to make the guy who was going to switch onto the pick and roll be out of position because he had to defend the back screen first i thought that was a nice little action there and then the heat ran an interesting action on the first play of the game they actually got kyle lowry the ball about 19 feet um on the right side of the floor and then basically ran two simultaneous cross screens one for duncan robinson at the three-point line and then the other one for bam out of bio to get into the lane and out of bio it hit a nice short jumper out of that but basically they gave i, I thought it was a, a good way it was almost kind of similar to floppy action where you which more teams used to run back in the day when they would have a guy up top on the floor and you could you would have them you know one shooter run out one side one shooter run out the other side warriors used to run it back in the mark jackson days but that's a little bit more difficult because with when you're at the top of the floor it's tough to see both of to get the guys. angles yeah yeah see both those guys coming off the screen and make the pass up you you end up kind of just committing as the ball enters the top of the key to one side or the other and so what this does is it actually you know it's really more like a pass pattern in football where you had Lowry their best passer basically in a position to find one of two guys coming off a screen simultaneously um and far enough away from each other that the two wouldn't impact each other but not so far away that you can't easily throw either pass I I really liked that action I think that's something that I would recommend uh, other teams looking to do. I think it was the first play of the game against, and, and you know maybe this is something that teams have run before, and I just haven't, and I should have seen it, and I haven't yet. But I, I and you got to have a shooter like Duncan Robinson, and you got to obviously have a an opponent that's not switching to run it. But I, I thought it was pretty good. Um, enough on that though. Uh, Miami switching definitely caused some problems for Washington. Bradley Beal, I thought, was able to get some traction against Duncan Robinson on switches. And I think uh, Be- uh, Robinson is worse moving his feet against quick guys than he is trying to get posted up although he's frankly not 
not great at either and but Beal when he tried to isolate against anyone other than Duncan Robinson or maybe Tyler Hero just got nowhere and ended up with six turnovers in the game he was eight out of 17 one of seven from three but he wasn't able to create a ton of his own offense and then Jimmy Butler was had one of his better games in one-on-one offense that I've seen it in a while really was going wild out of the post I think he hit like four or five fadeaway jump shots I guess not terrible opposition yeah I, I thought I thought um, Kuzma Kuzma did a pretty solid job contesting some of those yeah yeah so yeah did you watch that game as I well, watched parts I watched parts of it I actually watched more of the Thursday game than the Saturday game okay well we'll feel free to break yeah, in course. then sorry if I'm if I'm rambling along no. uh, too far but yeah uh also uh, another really interesting thing was the Heat are actually fifth in the NBA in percentage of post-ups and I mentioned Butler doing it Bam is doing it a little bit he did not have a good game he struggled with foul trouble and it wasn't really effective as they didn't go to him much one-on-one he was effective at it either um but Butler is good and even PJ Tucker had like two he had a fadeaway turnaround jumper from the dotted line against a smaller guy in this one I think it was against Howell Neto and he also got like a nice post-up I think it was against KCP off of switches where they actually like threw it to him in the post and like let him go to work which I thought was fascinating because Tucker as has been talked about for so long is like one of the lowest usage players basically never took a shot outside of a corner three or potentially an offensive rebound but you know he was a big man in college and he does weigh like 250 like he in theory maybe he could get back to doing a little bit of this I, I thought that was fascinating to just just give him you know another couple of attempts per game keep him involved a little bit more make the defense honor him a little bit more I think that's that'll be something interesting to watch um you know the heat really probably outplayed the wizards for most of the game they led by 16 in the third they ended up 7 of 27 from three but when they took their 16 point lead in the in the third they made four of their seven threes in about a four minute period right at the start of the third to go up by 16 um but Montrez harrell was a big part of leading them back you know another plus 17 13 points five of seven in 25 minutes and i, I think he just looks springier again they're playing he's playing more with more space than he was on the lakers last year he played some with anthony davis he's featured on that note how did you think gafford looked because he was coming back from that thumb issue which he missed the game that i watched more closely yeah he got in foul trouble early as well so it wasn't able to do that much it had a couple of of nice plays protecting the rim but uh you know he only played 15 minutes in this one had four fouls four turnovers some of which were illegal screens Uh, but yeah harold is just like bouncing off the floor uh in and getting those kind of off vert dunks under the rim that it's still he's not getting quite as high above the rim on those as he used to but he's still he's got enough athletically to still be really effective and i also thought he had a pretty good defensive game he was effective on switches they left him on the floor for defense only possession twice in the last minute of the game including down by or with miami down three and he actually switched on to butler and stayed with him i was questioning why they would stay with him instead of going maybe with avdia and kuzma as the four and five which they did at the end of the first rather than with gafford and baltro and they didn't go back to harold they instead were doing more switching with that group instead though they stuck with harold and harold actually stayed with jimmy butler pretty well forced a, a difficult miss as they elected not to foul up three uh, in the last 10 seconds of the game so harold continues to to really look pretty good howell neto had a big stretch in the third after they went down 16 he came in for din 
Dinwiddie in the normal normal rotation and hit a, a big floater. Neto actually even had like a couple of blow by drives on Hero who struggled in individual defense in this game. Um, let's see what else I got here. Duncan Robinson did have to leave the game with I think it was a knee contusion. He was limping around early in the third. The Heat though, even in their knee to three possession, still stuck with PJ Tucker and Bam out there rather than going with Max Struess. I actually thought Max Struess was pretty good in individual defense. He did a nice job uh, on Bradley Beal when Beal tried to take him a couple of times. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, I thought, had a, a really nice game. Four of seven from three. Played 30 minutes. Like It seems like that's kind of the most they want to play him. And obviously Neto has given them really good minutes behind him as well. But Dinwiddie had some big three-pointers. The Wiz actually trailed by 10 with four minutes left. Dinwiddie had a, a spot-up three, and he had three very difficult step-backs uh, over the course of the game. But he, he hit two in that comeback, had, had four assists. It didn't get to the foul line. That's where he's kind of fallen off a little bit here. And Denny Avdia had a rough time of it. He committed a couple of fouls on, on Butler that were questionable. Scott Foster was definitely loving him some Jimmy Butler <laughs> the foul line in, in this game. Oh, boy. On some questionable ones. I mean, Butler continues to be, I mean, he's probably top five in MVP right now. 29 points, 11 to 19 from the field. And just his self-created offense was pretty impressive yeah, in, and, in this game, which we haven't seen I, that much of. From I, don't argue, I don't argue with that at all. But one thing I was I was looking at stats earlier in the week that dumbfounded me is that currently this is the first season of Jimmy Butler's career that his team has actually had a better net rating when he's off the floor than when he's on the floor. But I think there's yeah. a lot of and, and Demar Derozan is the opposite now. They're the Bulls are actually way better when he's on the floor. Yeah. Their luck has finally shifted. But I, I think some of that the offense has been a little ridiculous in the the non Jimmy minutes. Um, and also there there has been some time that he missed and the 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 starting. Five, basically it's the starting five but the only change is that heroes in for butler that group has been really really good so far um so we'll we'll, we'll keep an eye on that and there's let's, also let's a, keep an eye on the wizard stats here too oh yes they thank are you 11 and 5 now they were 10 and 3 they lost a couple in a row but uh, righted the ship with this they they lost to charlotte and miami back to back and and i was mentioned didn't we didn't play in miami so this is an important win for them even though i would again argue that they got outplayed uh and the the three-point shooting luck was definitely in their favor particularly with some of the difficult shots that they were hitting that, that and as mentioned they trailed by 10 with four minutes to go they should have should have lost this one but big win uh the offense hasn't been that amazing 21st uh, in the nba uh they are fourth in defense though and have overall plus 2.5 net rating and uh, srs after this week doesn't really think that they've had played that easy of a schedule there plus uh 3.2 third in the east in srs so there are a bunch of other teams beyond them they project for the eighth seed with 44 wins 58 percent chance to playoffs per raptor 74 percent chance per elite BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Low. Who's up next here? Bucks here. Milwaukee nine and eight on the season, five and three since the last 1560. They're still a little bit below water, including the glass net rating negative 0.6. And they're actually below average in both offense and defense. 20th on offense, 17th on defense. Even so, Raptor still loves the Bucks thinks that they're going to end the year with the best record in the East, 52 wins. And Elo, less 
enthusiastic 82% chance of making the playoffs. On Saturday, Giannis dropped 32-20 and 20 in 30 minutes as they beat the Magic. Um, he was 15 of 23 from the free throw line. That was the other one like Harden, these two high free throw guys that got to the line 20 or more times over the weekend. And so after Saturday, despite the overall climate, Giannis's free throw attempt rate, whether you want it per game or per 100 possessions, is higher than either of his MVP seasons that we're still dealing with, you know, a, a very a, a small proportion of the season. But what I wanted to focus on, part of it is because so many different bucks have been missing time. I wanted to focus on a buck who has been available, and that is Grayson Allen, who part of the reason Milwaukee acquired him ostensibly was because Dante DiVincenzo was going to miss time. He's still out. And so I wondered not only how is Grayson Allen doing, but how is is his role different than what DiVincenzo was doing for the Bucks? And we'll start with kind of the basics. Allen starting and playing 30 minutes game, 15 points, four rebounds, but a really strong 63% true shooting on pedestrian 18% usage. And Grayson Allen's still not great from two, still not getting to the line. But when you shoot 42% on eight and a half threes per game, you're going to be a very efficient player. And that's really what Grayson Allen has done so far. Yeah, and he fulfills an important role for them and does it better than Bryn Forbes like that's he's going to be in the Bryn Forbes role eventually for them assuming that Hill and DiVincenzo are healthy and DiVincenzo I mean he might not play at until next year at this rate given the fact that we haven't even gotten the slightest of update on him but the good news though is that Allen while he's no stalwart defensively and I do think he's going to be a liability I think he does at least bring more on that end than Bryn Forbes does and he is a really good shooter like he he is a legitimate 40 percent plus three-point shooter and does it on Sophia. he can even do some movement shooting as well and so that's uh, provided a really really important element for this team and particularly when they get everyone back to have someone in the starting lineup who is just that level of knockdown shooter that's what they've been missing a lot of times when they've gone through these stretches which of course they did even last year where they just can't hit a fucking three in the playoffs he's at least someone who can do that will he hold up well enough defensively that's a, will be another question yeah and obviously yeah it'll be a definitive question but part of the equation for milwaukee is that when they're at full strength or close to it they don't need as many advantage creators they need play finishers and you know some play finishers are good dunkers and can do you know roll men or something else like that but another way of doing that's just hitting the open shots that are created within the flow of the offense and that's the part of the grace Allen story that i think is both different and encouraging is that his role is much more narrowly tailored to divincenzo they're not basically just run in the same playbook 40 percent of grace Allen's possessions are spot ups that's way higher than divincenzo and you know so it's basically 60 percent of his shots are catch and shoot overall and then f- versus 42 percent for divincenzo and that's good because grace Allen is worse at those things than dante divincenzo is and when Giannis is available even with drew holiday and chris middleton fading in and out of the lineup but depending on their own availability like you don't necessarily need that from grace Allen. And as you mentioned, the, the kind of probably the definitive question for Grayson Allen in the Bucks title hopes is can he hold up defensively? We're still, you know, I mean, really early on, but um, EPM estimated plus minus sees Allen as a slight negative defensively. I have long believed that limited defensive players benefit from playing with guys like Giannis, where basically this the credit gets spread too far and the blame, you know, all the, all that kind of stuff. But I think he's been fine. Like, that's the way I would put it overall. Yeah. And meanwhile, Giannis, efficiency is 
down, uh, although he did have that ridiculous game uh, over the weekend to bump it up a little bit. So he's now uh, 59% true shooting. Most of the other numbers are pretty close. He's getting even more defensive rebounds uh, than he, he did last year. Usage is up from 32 to 35. You mentioned the free throw rate is about the same, and that's what's been shown. And I forgive me if I don't recall exactly who had this, but essentially the reduction in fouls is all coming on the perimeter shots. Yeah. On shots at the rim, the foul rate's about the same. And uh, last I checked, Giannis uh, gets to the foul line a, a ton. And one nice thing as well is that he's reduced his turnovers to pretty close to the lowest of his career. Is what one year where he's lower, but only twelve percent. He had one year where he's eleven point seven percent there. And when you consider how high the usage is now, also he also has the highest block percentage of his career again because I think he's playing more center than he had been before, and second highest rebound percentage of his career. So really, the only thing that's got down in terms of his individual numbers is the efficiency which you would expect it and then in terms of shooting he's taking more threes not making any more of them still i mean he's metronome like efficiency or consistency at 30 percent from three the last three years but taking 24 percent of his shots out there instead of 20 he's also taking more shots uh, away from the rim from two point range and hitting a few more of those than he has he's at uh, the place where he's really dropped is in that three to ten foot floater type of range but in terms of just the mid-range jumper he's actually getting it to like the 40 percent type of area where he's been about 35 percent at points in his career at least that's where he was last year and he's taking more of those than he has before about 20 percent of his shots now are coming between 10 feet and the three-point line he's hitting 40 percent of those so that might be getting close to good enough to where because I, I was talking about this a, a lot with ben yesterday ben taylor about how all he needs to be able to do is hit a mid-ranger well enough that the center if he's being guarded by a center the center can't just stand under the basket and wait for him there and maybe he's getting close to that point here should we move on to the sixers is that who it is no, no it's, it's the, the knicks, knicks. Um, the Knicks are nine and seven on the year, three and four since the last 15 and 60, 12th in net rating plus 2.3, ninth in offense, 16th in defense, and a modest Raptor ELO difference. Raptors 34% chance of making the playoffs, projects they'll tie for 11th, just under 500. ELO thinks they'll be basically it's a 50 50 proposition. And from a macro perspective, I find the Knicks so fascinating. Also, they are a very discussed team on NBA Twitter. That's the nature of being in a major media market, being a team that, you know, that finishes the four seed last year and because they have these really weird outcomes so far and so it's the, there's been a lot of the sky is falling because their starting lineup has been outscored by this ridiculous rate and then there's you know the optimism that you could figure out a better rotation and where i think i want to start with this actually though is an idea that so uh, uh, the duality of how i see it right now which is that for the regular season i think the knicks are fine i mean you can even see that with the net rating and there's been some you know opponent shooting luck in there as well but I think there is there is grounds for concern, but not in the way that people are talking about as much, which is the foundational pieces of the Knicks moving forward haven't been propelling their success as much as you would hope. Yeah, R.J. Barrett, we'll get into more of a breakdown on him, but it, his shooting has regressed some. He's down to 31% from three. You hoped that maybe with a little bit more spacing, particularly in the starting lineup, that he could be more effective getting to the basket and playmaking. That hasn't been the case so far this year. And then the other thing that's happened is I thought that Julius Randle might have a smaller role in terms of his usage this year, but could be a lot more efficient. And the reason I thought he could be more efficient is because he could just take better shots. They would have more 
more spacing. He could get set up a little bit more and he could change his shot distribution. And that in fact has happened. He is taking 14 percentage points fewer of his shots for mid-range. Last year, it was 50% of his shots on twos away from the rim. This year, that's down to 36%. And he's equally distributed that 14% between three-pointers and percentage of shots at the rim. 23% of his shots at the rim last year, which is really low for a guy who plays at the power forward position. And now that's up to 30% of his shots this year. And 27% of his shots from three last year, 34% this year. That's all really good. Unfortunately, he can't actually make any of those shots, at least relative to where he was last year, which may have been unsustainable. A year ago, 41% from three down to 36% this year. Last year, he still takes a sizable percentage of his shots from mid-range. 36% of his shots from mid-range is a high number. He hit 43% of those last year. It's 33% Oof. this year. And on, on long mid-rangers, outside of the paint, we're talking 27% now. And then he also still is a poor finisher at the rim, where you would hope, again, they would have more spacing. Now, he still does play almost all of his minutes with a big center. He's played only 36 minutes with Obi Toppin, and actually is five of six at the rim in those minutes not that Toppin has made himself out to be some great three-point shooter but he'll at least stand away from the rim and and let Randall go to to work a little bit more but yeah so you'd hope that Randall could have been more efficient at the rim and you know I think the the 40 41 percent he shot from three last year that I thought there was just no way that was going to happen again particularly because uh his so few of those were assisted um I mean in in a relative sense I mean I think like you know like 75 percent of his threes were assisted last year but he was hitting like some of those step back stuff last year I and mean, that's particularly for a four well, man that's and that, very low that ties in with something that i find fascinating about randall's shot profile this year is that he's his his threes are more assisted than last year 86 percent versus 79 but his twos are actually less assisted than last year uh 34 last year assisted 31 percent this year yeah that's fascinating uh so it, we'll see some of this should shake out he's he'll shoot better than 27 percent on, on long two going forward well and and we're not going to delve on on him as much but also like they gave a big contract to Evan Fournier. Fournier is, you know, he hasn't been horrendous, but he's been, you know, below, below league average efficiency so far. And it's how well, like there, there's a, there's a lot to be hopeful about with the Knicks. I think that there are some guys that have good seasons. There's a reason to believe that they will be better overall this year than they have been. But at times, like if the goal, if if you think you have a bright future, the goal is that the people, the people who are pushing you are the people who will be doing so moving forward. And that's less true. So that's a reason to be a little bit less optimistic. Well, and particularly because these guys actually getting back to contention is based on someone wanting to join up uh, and play there, at least in the somewhat near term. And if you don't have those building blocks of Randall and Barrett, then uh, as really being, you know, looking like guys who could potentially be all-stars or, or close to it, then, uh, you know, come play with, uh, you know, Taj Gibson, uh, we're going to really defend, isn't perhaps as scintillating. Uh, last thing here on these guys, guys at least from my standpoint i don't know if you have anything else but uh you know 2.3 net rating uh, as we mentioned i mean that's kind of right about where it should be if they want to be on pace for 45 wins which is what we kind of thought they were going to be i mean i think their over under was only 41 and a half i picked them for 44 wins uh but they are 13th in the conference in srs but amazingly that's only negative 0.87 uh they have had a very easy schedule to be much higher in net rating than srs uh but there's only two teams in the whole conference below uh negative 0.87 in srs that is the execrable magic and pistons 
and so that's also is seen in some of these projections where i think our 13th ranked team in the conference is supposed to be 34 wins and the number one team in the conference is the bucks with 52 so you've got 13 teams projected right now between 52 and 34 wins so this playoff race in the east particularly when you consider the play-in i think it's gonna be pretty pretty damn fun even if you know maybe there aren't teams playing at the absolute highest level yeah and the volume there means that it could be a it could be a very different dynamic you know injuries and all that is are are going to shift things and we could shift to the Philadelphia 76ers who hope that they will be above that morass they're 9 and 8 on the year 2 and 6 since the last 15 and 60 the sixers are eighth in net rating overall fueled by their offense second in offense at a 114 per 100 possessions 22nd on defense and they're still a playoff team i mean i think all the models have that and Part of the the story in Philadelphia, I would say, is less is less interesting because the dynamic is something that is altogether unsurprising, which is the Sixers are seven and two when Joel Embiid has been available, and they are two and six when he sits. And especially with Ben Simmons out, that floor is just lower. Though there is some real good news that. Overall, Philadelphia is outscoring opponents when Embiid is off the floor. It was over a point. It was over plus one. Now it's down to plus 0.4 after their loss to Portland on Saturday. Um, and they're primarily doing that through offense. The When Embiid is off the floor, Philadelphia is scoring 114 points per 100 per 100 possessions yeah that is a shockingly shockingly high number and they've had a, a lot of reasons why that's having seth curry his wonderful season and you know, tobias harris remains a really solid scorer and tyrese maxey is really coming on uh, as well we've talked about him a little bit at least lately but it seems like a guy who is quite ahead of schedule daryl morey's draft record continues to be really really good i mean charles bassey also had a huge game he did as we mentioned a, a couple of pods ago um in i think it was against denver and daryl morey when they've actually kept their draft pick it's kind of a shame that they traded away so many of them i think that the rockets had when he was there had one draft pick that they even used between clint capella obviously an awesome draft pick number 25 in uh, 2014 and the time that he left there and that was used on sam decker and then sam decker obviously didn't work out and then was uh, had a back injury and then was traded away in the in the cp trade ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in the nba just noting it because most of those weren't to upgrade a lot of them were to offload salary which drove me insane at the time i'm not gonna Uh, i mean probably like i would say it's probably like half and i mean fortita didn't even come in until yeah. 2017 right i i could I, I at some point maybe i'll go through it i don't really want to right now but one of the reasons you brought up seth curry and there are plenty of them of why the sixers offense has been good there Tyrus Maxey's also really stepped up, and you you were talking about the draft record. And so Maxey, one of the things that I find really interesting, his place within the Sixers, you know, he came off the bench primarily last year. Maxey played 15 minutes a game. He's up to 36 so far this year. So it's a, it's a very different thing. But his, you know, per minute, like, usage and assist rate is smaller. Part of that, I mean, a significant part of that is because when he when Embiid's on the floor, he's been starting, and so they play together, and Embiid's going to soak up possessions because he's incredible. But wait, Maxi jumped from 53% true shooting as a rookie. He's up to 61% so far this year. And it's a mix of shooting a lot better from three. Last year, Maxi shot 30% on only 1.7 per game. Again, playing much fewer minutes. And then now shooting 42%. I think the 42% is 
unreasonably high, particularly when you consider that Maxi is a little a little more than half of his threes are assisted, which is like so he's he's taking more of them himself than last year. So yeah, the the true like shooting percentage, like his actual like long term one is probably lower than this. But this was a very real concern about Maxi, and I think even if it ends up being lower than this, the expectations should be higher than they were before. Yeah, and Maxi particularly impressive that sixty one percent true shooting because so much of what he's done has been self created, and particularly if he's going to run uh, pick and roll with Embiid, you're not going to switch that with Joel Embiid on the other end of it. So he should be able to work against conventional pick and roll defenses most of the time. But forty eight percent of his possessions coming as pick and roll ball handler, and he is. 1.09 points per possession 92nd percentile there uh never turns it over Derek Bodner actually tweeted this yesterday that he probably needs to actually turn it over more yeah to reach his potential as a player um you know and, and his, his distribution like hasn't been unbelievable He's making some of the basic reads, but nothing where you're like, oh, these are unbelievable passes. So how's he doing it out of pick and roll? I mean, we mentioned that he's shooting the 40% from three. He's hit enough uh, when the defense goes under. He is shooting 16 out of 40 on jumpers off the dribble out of pick and roll. A crazy 12 out of 17 on floaters out of pick and roll. But what's really most impressive to me is that 44% of the time he's getting to the bucket in pick and roll. And he's shooting... 52 percent on those which is actually in pick and roll where the big is usually in position that's a pretty good number for a guard yeah because you're you're taking out every transition opportunity you're taking out a lot of the ways the guys can get efficient shots at the basket well and what's more too if if the guard gets to the basket in pick and roll even when he misses that's a great offensive rebound opportunity for the big two and particularly when it's andre drummond who's one of the best offensive rebounders you know he can can feast off of that we saw that part of what made that reggie jackson drummond pick and roll so effective back in Detroit was that if you go after Jackson at the rim like Drummond would be right there to to clean it up so yeah really exciting encouraging stuff from Tyrese Maxey and you know do we see an all-star future for him yet no but even just to get I mean he's easily I would say already this is the other than maybe Jimmy Butler this is the best stretch of pick and roll ball handler play that they've had since Embiid has been in Philly yeah wholeheartedly agree we will close out this 15 and 60 with the Toronto Raptors who are now eight and nine they're a rough two and five since last 15 and 60 though they've had some player absences which we'll discuss uh they're negative 0.7 net rating so kind of right in that mix 14th on offense disappointing 21st on defense both Raptor and Elo give them about a 35 percent chance of making the playoffs and one really positive piece of news for the Raptors is that it looks like Pascal Siakam is rounding into form on um a week ago he had 25 12 and 7 against detroit and really since then other than one stinker against the jazz where he was two for 14 and you don't want to discount that i mean utah a a great defense and it's it's a game that counts but siakam has looked better and for the season up to 40 percent on threes and getting to the line pretty well about five attempts per game so that part of the story i think is 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 good for the raps and the challenge is that now we don't know exactly what the timeline is with og the Raptors can be notoriously tight-lipped about this. Um, but the good news is that he was upgraded to questionable for their game on Sunday. So question, you know, generally what that means is that maybe the Nick Nurse quote that OG is going to be out for a while. Maybe it's not going to be a while. Maybe it'll be less time than that. But 
one of the one man's week is another man's while. Yes, definitely the case. Um, but what is something that I wanted to look at inspired by, um, I believe that was the game against the Blazers was how Toronto has fared in lineups when they played without Precious Chua, Kem Birch or Chris or, or Chris Boucher, which I that's how I would define small ball lineups for the reps. Yeah, I mean, that, that starting lineup is a very, very exciting unit. A lot of fun to watch. Uh, what are the early returns on that so far? The small ball reps have been outscoring opponents. That's how they have a positive net rating. It's their 90th percentile on offense and 11th percentile on defense. But I I think there are a lot of reasons for that shift. And, and one important distinction to make is between that kind of starting lineup, as you brought up, Van Vliet, Gary Trent, OG, Scotty Barnes, and Siakam. That group has been has been I would say much better defensively and then some of the other ones have been a little bit a little bit fluky and so you kind of you're you're by looking at the small ball lineups you're combining a lot of different things uh, the, what I don't think will change, and I think um, part of it is good news, is that they're forcing a ton of turnovers, over 20% of opponent possessions. And when you think about the Sharks in those in the best of those lineups, it makes sense. I mean, you're going to force a lot of turnovers. You can can wreak a lot of havoc. It's not only like, oh, you can switch a lot of stuff. It's also you can trap and recover, and you can run a lot yeah. of different schemes with that group. Interesting that you mentioned the Sharks, too. I mean, Gary Trent is probably has the highest steal rate of any of these guys uh, yeah. on this team. 3.2% steal rate so far for Gary Trent. Yeah impressive and, and, and Trent by the way pretty good season so far 56% true shooting above league average uh some question that contract I don't know that he's like living up to it yet and it still is a pretty short contract as well but he's been what about as good as they could have hoped I'd say uh, on either end so far and two of the challenges d- for this group defensively um one is that they've been kind of beaten around the basket they're getting worked on the defensive glass 33% opponent rebound rate offense Offensively, which is horrendous and they're giving up high shooting at the rim like that's not a huge surprise you have to it, team rebounding when you're playing that small is very difficult and especially if you're sp- spreading guys out and sometimes when they're switching so i don't expect that to improve but i do expect the foul fouling to improve they fouled a lot in the small ball lineups but that volume is primarily on some of these more ancillary groups the main the main group has not done a ton of fouling so i expect that once that's a larger part of the these minutes that that will get better and then the other thing that looks good for the Raptors is that they've struggled defensively in this, but it's been unsustainably high opponent shooting uh, 45% from three 53% above the break. And even if they're going to give up a lot, even if opponents are going to shoot, a, maybe for whatever reason, you're accepting the premise that they're going to shoot unusually high. It's not going to be this high. So there is some regression to the mean that will really help the reps in those minutes. That I think is really positive. And it gets into this idea. That's been my framework for the Raptors this entire season, which is I don't believe in their half court offense, but, can they not be in half court offense enough to be viable on that end of the floor? And, you know, at this point they're above league average, they're 14th. And if they can get more stops, which I expect to be the case eventually, they could, it could actually extend beyond that. I got a couple other interesting things uh, to talk about here. Uh, One is I call this like young player reality check, or if we want to go alliteration rookie reality check or Scotty Barnes, I think most people would consider him the front runner for rookie of the year at the moment. 
Coleman. I think Evan Mobley has been better than him, but Mobley is out now. So I I would guess probably that I will have Scotty Barnes as my rookie of the year a, a week from now when we do it. Though I haven't really delved in the stats, but and he's had some very impressive games. But let's just slow down a little bit here. You know, he is shooting fifteen percent from three. The three is just not a part of his game at all so far. Not like an unbelievable finisher around the rim, sixty three percent, and overall below average efficiency. He's at fifty three percent true shooting, a little bit slightly below the league average in terms of usage 19.8 percent usage and uh, has had some pretty good moments uh, defensively has, has made some wild plays also though i think he kind of gets beat in isolation more than someone with his physical tools should as of now so he's been impressive he's been encouraging no reason to think that uh he's not on a good path right now but also like he, let's not go crazy here quite yet Let, let's he's had some big games people always focus on those you never you know you, you let's say you're just in terms of what's available and you talk about this all the time with the news like it's noteworthy when scotty barnes has 20 points and and goes 9 out of 16 from the field and it's not noteworthy on social media when scotty barnes goes 4 or 12 from the field so you if you only see it in your social media feed when he does well you kind of forget about his bad games and that's why it's important to look at the overall stats uh toronto much has been made of toronto's running and we can delve into that a little bit more uh they are number one in the nba running on 19 percent of their possessions uh they're only 16th in efficiency they're doing it both on steals and misses and then of course they're this crazy duality number one they run this idea of like oh if you run more then you're gonna get into this track meet and you're gonna give up transition hasn't been the case for them at all i don't i think that is just pretty much a fallacy um that i mean i think maybe to some extent it carries over but it doesn't necessarily have to that if you if you run a lot that you also give up transition but they're not they're no more than the nba in preventing transition we also know of course how good they are at offensive rebounding so both being good in transition offensively and at offensive rebounding but then also not giving up transition is pretty impressive however they haven't really reaped the benefits of preventing teams from running because they've been extraordinarily unlucky with transition against them they are 29th in points per possession when they do give up transition even though they're giving up transition really infrequently yeah that's really and so i thought but i think you expect that yeah. to normal to to balance out at least a partially in time yeah. some teams are extraordinarily i would think so i would think so well and so then i thought okay well maybe what it is is that because they're 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 doing a good job of getting back on defense ordinarily the times when they can't get back on defense it's just like a run out these plays where nobody could possibly get back on defense you got it gave up pick six or something like that and that's that's why their numbers are so bad no they're actually fine in terms of off steals but they are 30th in transition defense point per possession off of misses even though they're number one in preventing it so i would say that that would militate in favor uh, militate against that theory and so that'll be fascinating i'd like to see i'd really be interested in the breakdown of like our team's just hitting a ton of threes against them in transition that's my would be my theory uh but i mean again maybe there's some thought that because they don't give up that many transition plays you know it's like all right the guy you miss a layup and then the ball bounces out to half court and there's a guy there who's got a two-on-one immediately or something and that's that's why the numbers are so bad but i don't think so i think it's probably just bad luck and so they'll reap even further benefits defensively from the way that they can keep teams out of transition going forward than they have 
have already hopefully you will reach some benefits from being a subscriber of course you're getting this right away here on dunk down prime and if you're not a subscriber i encourage you to give it a shot because you can get uh, all of our podcasts per week and of course get this one ad free as well and a few hours later of course uh, sunday night this is coming out we're recording this during the afternoon pacific time here on the west coast so we will talk to y'all again on monday uh, ahead of thanksgiving till then across america bp supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like updating turbines at one of our indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the gulf of mexico it's and not or See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.